Well, so good to see all of you, and uh, it's kind of like coming home. I have uh, a lot of things to share this morning, so do you need to switch something on there? audio, I believe, so we'll be okay. All righty. Yeah, and there are a few, uh, I think, that maybe don't know me here. Um, so for those who, who don't, um, I was pastor here for a little while. January, or I'm sorry, June 1st, 1990, till when we left in 2000. 18, a few years ago, and uh, before we actually get to the message, I guess a few things I want to share. It was uh, just the other day was our 38th anniversary, and this kind of relates to the message, so I'm going to go ahead and share it now. Um, as a young man, I'd made a lot of stupid choices when it came to relationships with girls, and frankly, came to a point where I understood I didn't know what in the world I was doing. And it's one of those times in my life, and you've had them too, where you come to a realization that you don't know, but God knows, and you better pray. And so that's what I did. I was in St. Helens. I was in my apartment. I was in my bedroom. I knelt down, and I humbled myself before God, said, God, I have no idea what I'm doing. And if this is ever going to work out in a way that's uh, pleasing to you, you're going to have to do it. And it wasn't. Too long after that, that I was at a Bible study, and I saw Laura, and I knew, without a doubt, she was the one that I would marry. And I say all that because I know you've been praying for her, even as Greg mentioned, and I'm so very thankful. And i got to say, Laura is an amazing woman. And, uh, you know, it's been a challenge for her, four and a half years of uh, fighting cancer. We all have... I don't want to diminish anybody's troubles because everybody has their own troubles they go through. Um, but in Laura's case, she's been dealing with cancer for four and a half years. And on top of that, she deals with chronic pain every single day. And, you know, I was having this discussion with somebody the other day. Our society is kind of big on this whole idea of victimhood. Uh, they think there's something to be gained by that. You know, there's not. And uh, she could do that if she wanted to, but there's nothing accomplished in it. Instead, to be somebody by faith in Jesus, overcoming the challenges you face in life is the way to go. And uh, that's who she is. And she's had an incredible attitude. She's got faith in Jesus. She prays every day. She's in the Word every day. She cares about other people. She shows love where she can. And praise God for it. And... Uh, She's a great example to me. Somebody told me uh, one day, 
you've got no idea how many people uh, have been encouraged by Laura's example. And uh, I really appreciate that. I would also say, though, whenever I hear that, I'm very mindful of the fact that there's a lot of people praying for her. In fact, some of them are on the other side of the world. So I'm very appreciative of the fact that um, we have brothers and sisters in Christ over there, and we have some here, and we have some in Hefner, and we have friends even around the country that pray for her on a regular basis. And I'm very, very thankful to you uh, for doing that. I really appreciate it. And so, as you probably saw, the church prayer chain is so busy these days, uh, isn't it? You probably saw the other day she got uh, the news, actually on Friday, that her tumor markers had gone up 81 points, which is a lot, to 199. So we're not sure yet what that means, but thank you so much for your prayers for her. The text still up there, is a text that I came across before we moved. When we had the news of Laura's cancer and it was getting time to move away and all the challenges associated with that, leaving our home, our dream home we built, leaving this church family that was a part of our lives for so many years and everybody moving far away from all the folks we love and care about here, moving from Astoria all of those things before that happened even this text came to my attention and it spoke to my heart and it's been on my mind ever since and so before I say anything more I want to read the text and we're going to try to uh, make our way through some of this along with some personal things I have to share so we're in 2nd Corinthians chapter 1 and starting in verse 8 for we do not want you to be unaware brothers of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Let's go ahead and pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we live in a day where there are so many voices saying so many things about so many topics. We as your children, we want to hear from you. We want to pray, we want to hear from the Holy Spirit, and we want to hear through your word, and we want to hear in our hearts that we might live in a way that would honor and please you, that we might be, as the people of faith, people who are trusting you in the affairs of our lives, that we are people not prone to a spirit of timidity or fear, but are people who, in a very real way, in the daily affairs of our life, trusting you in all the matters that come our way. And so we pray as we look at this text today, we pray you would work within our hearts and those things that are not in keeping with uh, what you have for us, you would point those out and our hearts would be responsive to you in the work of the Spirit of God that we might walk with you, that we might be used by you, and that you might be honored and glorified within our Christian lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So uh, a couple of months ago, um, I was at this really low spot in my Christian life. Uh, discouraged, I guess you could probably say depressed, uh, feeling pretty lost about things, feeling pretty hopeless, um, feeling like kind of wanting to give up on stuff. Uh, just, you probably know, maybe you've been there before. And you know what, that, that actually is not necessarily a bad place to be. In fact, sometimes it is a good thing to give up, if the giving up is your own doing. Well, you'll understand what I mean in a minute. So I began to pray. And sometimes when you pray, I guess we have our regular prayers, you know, our daily prayers, we pray about the things that we are concerned about. But I don't know about you, but I've had time in my life where I was praying from the bottom of a pit. I was praying from a place where all I can really do is cry, help me, God. I don't even have the words to express how needy my situation is. Do you understand what I'm saying? Actually, at the time, a favorite passage for me when I was praying that way is in Psalm 51 where it says, A broken and contrite spirit thou will not despise. And I actually was taking that verse and said, God, this is what you say, and this is where I am, and so I'm taking that, your word, in this matter, and I'm praying. And amongst other things that I'm praying is that happiness, God, I need something useful to do. Not that caring for Lord is not, it is. It's my number one Priority, and it's something I do, and all the different things that I have to do. But I needed something different outside of that, and I kind of knew that. So, anyway, I've been praying that for, I don't know, I suppose some weeks. And so one day I go into the store, I do all the shopping, I go into the local store in Hepner, and I get groceries for the day. And I do the checkout thing, and I got 52 cents. So I don't like pocket change. So the two cents go in the penny jar thing, and the 50 cents, there's the newspaper. I said, okay, I'm going to buy a newspaper. I don't normally buy it. The Hefner Gazette has got like maybe six pages, maybe. There's really not a lot of news in there. I suppose it's a fine paper. I just don't normally buy it. But I bought it with my 50 cents, and I took it home. It took me a couple of minutes to peruse through most of what was in there, and I got to the classifieds. And I'm looking at the classified, and there's a job there that gets my attention. The first thing I notice is 10 hours a week. I said, wow, 10 hours a week? I kind of like that. That's about right for what I can do. And then I see these words, part-time hospice chaplain. And I said, really? No kidding. In Hepner, there's a need for a 10-hour-a-week hospice chaplain. Could they have designed a better job for me? And so I call a person. It's somebody I know. She says, I was hoping you'd apply for that job. <laughs> I got interviewed for the job and I got hired. And so for a couple of months, I've been a part-time hospice chaplain. And I've been asked a couple of times, so that's kind of curious, you know, you're taking care of your wife who's terminally ill and you're a hospice chaplain. How does that work? Actually, it works pretty well. It's not without its challenges. But I've been visiting with a lot of dying people lately. And it kind of puts some things in perspective, if you know what I mean, right? 
I can't really tell you specifics about my visits, but I can speak in generalities. I went to visit a guy the other day. The first thing he told me was, I've been sinning my whole life. That's the first thing he told me. We went on to have a conversation about some of those particulars, very much aware his days are numbered. You know what happened with that particular instance? I've met with him three times. I've been able to share the gospel with him. Every step of it. All of it. I've talked to him about sin. I've talked to Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We talked about the wages of sin is death. We talked about that. We talked about God providing Jesus. God demonstrates his own love towards us. And while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. We talked about that. Romans 10.9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. We had that whole conversation. And we talked about faith in Jesus. And you know what? There he is. And he's responding to a message. And you know, if you boil that whole message down, that whole plan of salvation message, the whole gospel message, it's really a very simple message. And God has made it that way on purpose because we need simple. In our day, we need simple. And you know what that message really is? It's a message, it's this, trust Jesus. That's the message. That's a message not just, though, to the person who doesn't know Jesus Christ. That is God's message to his church today. It is his message to his church. And I say that because that's not what I see out there amongst God's people. That's not what I see. I'm speaking to generalities, obviously, because there are those, of course, who are living that way each and every day. But when we look across the broad landscape, and certainly how people see God's people acting in this day, it doesn't look like there's a lot of faith and trust in Jesus. Now, why is that? Well, I think some of it has to do with the way we come into this world as sinners with some rebellion in our hearts. There's a story of a man who was walking along a cliff and suddenly loses his balance, falls off. He's falling off. He was able to grab a hold of a branch that was hanging over the ledge. and He's barely hanging on there, holding on as tight as he can. He decides he should call out for help. Is there anybody up there who can help me? No answer. He calls out a second time. Is there anybody up there who can help me? Finally, in desperation, he calls out a third time. Is there anybody up there who can help me? Finally, a deep and powerful voice reverberated in response. This is God. I can help you. Just let go and trust me. So the man yells out again. Is there anybody else up there who can help me? Why is it we are so reluctant to trust God in a matter? Well, we know why, you know, for the lost person, the unsaved person, they don't know Jesus. They're not going to trust in God. Their heart isn't in that place. But why don't God's people trust him? You know what's remarkable in this text? Did you notice it when I was reading? I want you to know something that's very remarkable. 
It is in verse 9. Who's writing this? It's the Apostle Paul. You know what? The Apostle Paul is an expert when it comes to enduring trials. He's an expert. I think, I, could, it's, I think it's a fair statement. There's nobody that knew more than him about that matter. In fact, in um, 2 Corinthians later on, we read in chapter 11, and this is down in, um, starting in verse 21, Verse 22, are the Hebrews, so am I. Are the Israelites, so am I. Are the offspring of Abraham, so am I. So 11.23, are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking as a madman. He hates to speak this way because he's a humble man. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Now, as we read through this list, any one of these would be an incredible trial to endure. But as we go through the list, you'll see they're compounded one after the other, after the other. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day, I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers from false brothers, in toil and sea, dangers from the false, oh, I'm sorry, in hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Wow, what a list. And as I say, I think it's fair to say he's an expert when it comes to enduring trials. And yet, notice this in our passage. He says, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Paul, didn't you already know that? Weren't you already reached perfection in that? And I think the obvious answer is no. We spend our whole lives learning about this matter of trusting Jesus of not relying upon ourselves and trusting Jesus. That's the issue, right? That, that's the issue. Because we have our own wisdom, we got our own strength, we got our own abilities, and sometimes we just think, oh, hey, I can take care of this. You know what? The Christian life is to be a spirit-led life. And one of the things you come to realize, I think, the older you get is how dependent you are upon God's wisdom in every single decision you make. And you look back and see when you did things according to your own wisdom or your own strength or your own abilities, what did you do? You goofed it up, oftentimes. There's a Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 for a reason, right? Trust in the Lord, all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your steps, Right? So there's that challenge to not rely on yourself, to not rely upon your own strength, not rely upon your own wisdom, but instead to rely upon God. It's talking about faith. It's talking about trust. It's talking about reliance and dependence. There's three parts to my outline, so 
I'm going to try to try to make sure we get through all of those. And the first point I want to make is that trials are an inevitable part of life. That kind of should go without saying, right? And even as we look at the church prayer chain and all those emails and some of those things that are so challenging, and, you know, we can talk on a broader scale. We can talk about the COVID pandemic. We could talk about world events that are happening. We could talk about uh, political world. We could talk about division in our country. We could go down a long list of all kinds of things that are out there. But even if you don't pay any attention to the news, you have your own trials that you face. Trials are an inevitable part of life. It's kind of funny that, and maybe they're not so much in vogue anymore, but remember those health, wealth, and prosperity guys? You know? <laughs> what a, you know, unfortunately, it's, it's kind of funny, but it's really tragic that they would teach such falsehoods that you could avoid any trouble in your life. And In fact, it occurred to me the other day, and I used to use this track, so I'm picking on it, but at the same time, I have to kind of hold myself guilty. If you remember the Four Spiritual Laws booklet, remember that? The first law was what? God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. What's wrong with that? Well, you're going to share that with an unbeliever, right? Okay, well, yes, he does have a wonderful plan. That's true. But they might think, well, that means I'm just going to have this easygoing life with no troubles. Right? Is that true? Of course not. In fact, in some respects, to become a believer in Christ. In fact, I was thinking about this the other day. If we took that, that track and took it over there to our friends in India... And they go and share that with people. You know what happens when they become a believer in Christ? They're ostracized from their village. They're cut off from the village well. They lose their friendships. In some cases, they even lose their lives. Does that sound like a wonderful plan? I don't know. Pretty challenging, right? Well, to be sure, there's the wonderful plan aspects of it. But my main point, I've gone on a rabbit trail, is this. Trials are an inevitable part of life, right? They come to us a variety of ways. They're part of just living in this sin-cursed world, right? In Job it says, man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. It's just a universal thing. And you see it all the time, right? Jesus said, in this world you will have what? Trouble, tribulation, depending upon what translation you look at. So there are troubles that way. There are troubles that come to us by our own Sinful choices. In Galatians 6, it tells us that we reap what we sow. There are consequences for our sins. As a believer in Christ, we're thankful for God's forgiveness for our sins. Praise God. 1 John 1, 9. But that doesn't diminish the consequences that we face and God's discipline and trials that are associated with that. So there's another way by which we experience trials. And then, of course, many, um, and to a greater extent in our country, face trials because they believe in Jesus. Philippians one twenty nine says, It is granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So there are trials. And... We know something by that, just by way of our experience. We don't even really need the scriptures to remind us. Point number two, trials are to teach us to trust God. 
Trials are to teach us to trust God. Well, they're for a lot of things, right? In fact, there are verses in Scripture that tell us that we should even first, I'm sorry, James 1, 1, 3, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that God uses those trials to do what? Perfect Christian maturity in us, right? Romans 5 makes the same statement. In fact, both of those passages, together with Romans 8, make a case for the fact that we know something about these trials that helps us as we go through them. We know that God is using them in our lives as believers for a good purpose. Romans 8.28, you probably know. And we, and we know, right, and we know God causes all things to work together for, those, for good for those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. So we have knowledge of this fact that God is using these trials towards a good purpose. It's kind of like the refining fire. It's a great illustration where you put metal that's impure, gold and impurities, and you turn up the temperature and it drives the impurities to the surface so they can be taken away, and you end result is you have pure gold. Well, it's like that in the Christian life, and you add trials to our life, and what happens? Well, all these things come out impatience, right? Anger, resentment, all these ugly things, strife and disagreements and all that come out. Distrust comes out. And in the trials then, those things can be identified by the Spirit of God, the Word of God, and they can be put off by the Spirit, right? And in their place, there are Christian virtues that are put on. It's how that process works. So there is a good purpose to trials, but let me argue, I'm going to make an argument here that the number one lesson to be learned, and if you don't have that lesson, you can't get any of the other lessons, is that there is the need to trust God. That's the number one lesson. In fact, I would argue that in our routine lives, we are told in Scripture that you know God speaks to us like in a still, small voice by the Spirit of God. I think that's a good way to understand that. But, you know, I think God kind of shouts to us in our trials. Just like the child who's about to do some stupid thing, you know, trying to get our attention. Won't you trust me? Won't you look to me? Why are you not trusting me, child of God? And trials have this purpose to get our attention, that we would stop trusting ourselves and instead trust God, right? It actually is a lesson for our day. It, it absolutely is. Because the church has been going in its own strength for a long time. It has. In lots of different ways. I'm not talking about Lewis and Clark Bible Church. Don't misunderstand. I'm talking again in generalities. The church. The church in America. Trying to do the things that God has given it to do in its own strength. Relying upon itself. Well, now we have an opportunity, and let's look at it that way. We have an opportunity now. Trials have come our way, all kinds of them. And there's the world out there. They don't know God. They have no faith in God, and they're going to do whatever they do. But what about God's people? What are they going to do? There's that little ditty, when in trouble and in doubt, run in circles, scream and shout. We can do that. The world's doing that, right? Are we going to do that too? Well, that's not what God has for us to do. God has us for, to do what? Trust him. Trust him. Is he trustworthy? The God who created everything? 
The God who raised Jesus from the dead? The God who saved you from your sins? Is he trustworthy? Does he love you? Well, Paul the Apostle said, he loved me and delivered himself up for me. Does he know what he's doing? Scripture says that Jesus is filled with all wisdom. He's the all-knowing God. Is he powerful to intervene in your life for good? To protect you? To take care of you? To further you along on your Christian journey? Of course he is. Ephesians 1 talks about the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. Not as a theologically theological reality that's out there, God is omnipotent, but as, as it says, surpassing greatness of his power toward us, towards you who believe, as a practical and personal reality. Is God capable of taking care of you? Boy, I sure hope so, because I don't know where else you're going to go. Where are you going to go? I, again, go and visit somebody who's dying. Aren't you glad that there's a message to share with that person who's on the verge of leaving this earth? We should be so thankful for that gospel message. We should be so very thankful for the message of a God who created all things and has so loved sinners that he came to die for us. And not only that, that when he came and he died, he rose from the dead, gaining the victory over sin and death and hell and all of it. We should be so very thankful for that message. Are you thankful for that message today? I sure hope so. It is the message that's going to jettison you to eternity one day in heaven when that time comes. Yeah. One commentator said this, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that one of the greatest hindrances to living the Christian life victoriously is self-reliance. The easier life is, the more we are tempted to rely on ourselves. That's true, of course, even in human relationships. We would never go to a doctor if we didn't get sick. We would never go to a lawyer if we didn't have legal troubles. We would never go to a counselor if our relationships were okay. And we would never look to God if troubles didn't occur. We don't know exactly what kind of suffering Paul is talking about here, which, by the way, notice what he says about them. They were incredibly troublesome. He felt them to be the sentence of death to him. But it's obvious from the words he uses that Paul was in great anguish. The pressure was relentless. Perhaps some of you have been where Paul is. Maybe you're there today. Maybe you're at the end of your rope. What is God trying to say to you? Well, he has a redemptive purpose, and Paul describes it this way. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Here's the key. Suffering breaks the stubborn spirit of self-will inside of us. Do you see it there? That's God's purpose in it. That stubborn self-will, that foolish self-confidence, that idea of self-ability. You remember what uh, Jesus said when he was talking about the vine and the branches? And it's a, boy, it's such an important message. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. In the spiritual realm, apart from Jesus, how much can you do? You can do that much. 
And yet, we try, do we not? And these trials come along, and they're God's benevolent God's reminder to us that you can't, you know, you can't. You cannot do it on your own. Why are you trying to do that? Why not humble yourselves? Come before God. Come before me. How many times does God say? How many times does he have to say? Casting all your cares on him, for he cares for you. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously and without reproach. Come with confidence to the throne of grace that you might receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. How many times do we have to be told that we're like the children who are so reluctant to do what they're supposed to do in this matter of trusting God? It's a lifelong lesson, is it not? Right? It is. And it kind of begs the question, where are you at today? Whatever trials you're facing. I know, I know one thing. After 30 years of pastoral ministry, everybody's got their challenge. Everybody does. It doesn't matter who they are, right? And so, you know, what, what do you do with that? Where do you go with that? Well, obviously the right place to go is to take it to the Lord in prayer. In fact, so this passage talks about relying on him and not on ourselves. Do I have time for this rabbit trail? I'm calculating. You know, in, in Acts chapter 4, you know that's one of my favorite passages in Acts chapter 4. Yeah, I'm just going to briefly talk about it, okay? But it fits right in with what we're talking about. So, the, the disciples were given this command, you shall be my witnesses, right? You shall receive power, the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. And that's what they're doing. Acts 4, we read about that. There's a lame beggar. They share, they heal the man, then they share the gospel. And the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, the authorities say, we don't want you talking about Jesus anymore. And of course, what was the response? Well, judge for yourself what is right, but we ourselves, we can't stop speaking of what we have seen and heard. Remember that? But you know what, what is really interesting about that passage, what's so exciting about that passage is, what did they do when that was all said and done? Here's the Sanhedrin. They've got all the power. They could do what they want with those guys. What did they do? You know what they did? They went and held a prayer meeting. They held a prayer meeting in Acts chapter 4. You can read about it. And all their companions, they all joined in prayer. They were one accord in their prayer. What did they say? It's a model prayer. And that prayer is so needy today. Because we need to be reminded of these truths that the church knew way back then. What did they pray? They say, God, you created everything. God, you are in control. Nobody's going to do anything outside of what you have purpose to do according to the counsel of your will. Here's our part. We're trusting you to grant us the boldness to go and do the job you gave us to do in the beginning. And that's their prayer. God was so pleased with their prayer, you know what he did? He shook the earth to tell them that he heard. You know what that prayer was? That was a prayer of no self-reliance. No plan on their own. 
no purpose to do anything on their own other than what God had given them to do, right? It was a prayer of trust, was it not? We need, we need that kind of thought today, right? We need to look at the landscape and say, God, you created everything. God, I don't care what's going on in this world, you are in control. In fact, Jesus, you are the ruler of the kings of the earth, Revelation chapter 1. That we have that kind of faith. And we have the kind of faith that says, you know what? They want to fight about things out there. They want to divide about things out there. They want to point fingers. They want to blame shift. They want to do all that stuff. We're not going to do that. God, we're going to trust you. You've given us a gospel message to share. You've given us a Holy Spirit-born love in our hearts to share with other people. We're going to live lives of faith. We're going to rise above that. We're going to be the people of faith in reality. And people are going to see that in our lives, that we're trusting Jesus. There's going to be a difference. And they're going to want what we have. Second thing, set your hope on him, not on other things. Look back in that text in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us on him. We have set our hope that he will deliver us again. We'll talk in a moment about deliverance and what that can possibly look like. But for this moment, let me just ask the question, because I think it's a great question. Where does your hope lie? Where is it set? Where have you put it? It says in uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Fix your hope completely. That's always been a challenging passage to me, right? Because we have other hopes. We have hopes for our family. We have hopes for our church. We have hopes for our lives. And some of those aren't necessarily bad things. And then certainly there are some things we could hope for which really aren't probably the best. Well, I think what it's saying is that our hope is really all bundled up in the person of Jesus Christ. It's all in him. It's all in his promises. And when it is, we won't be disappointed. If we fix our hope on earthly things, there are no guarantees. No guarantees this side of heaven. I used to say at funeral services, you need to have a hope that lies beyond the grave. And here's the only one that will do that, and that is a hope that is fixed on Jesus. And it's interesting, in the New Testament epistles, you know what those folks believed? You know what they lived for? You know what they were anticipating? They were anticipating what? Christ's return. That's what they were anticipating. That's what they were living for. So, to be a heavenly-minded Christian, to be one who, as Scripture says, loves his appearing, to be one who is looking for the blessed hope, to be one who is saying, even so, come Lord Jesus, to be of that mind, to have, be one who has his mind set on things above and not on things on the earth. Yes, these are challenges, aren't they? But this is the thing that happens in trials. Years ago, Laura's mom was killed by a drunk driver. She was driving through... St. Helens, going through an intersection, a guy that was .28 drunk, just completely blew the stop sign, hit her car, 
She was gone like that. Talk about a tough time. She got a note from her friend, and amongst other things that her friend wrote, she said, heaven will seem all the more dear to you. And it's true. It's true. And let me tell you, when I'm talking to these hospice patients, so the ones who want to hear, they're not so concerned about any earthly hopes. I guarantee you. Right? They got one thought. And we're all going to be there someday, right? We're all going to be in that place someday where we're going to leave. Either Jesus is going to come, we're going to be raptured up into heaven, or we're going to die, right? And what's going to matter when that time comes? What's going to matter for you, right? Jesus is going to matter to you. The third thing that's listed here is, um, notice this. This is so good. Do you see verse 11? You see verse 11. This is the Apostle Paul. This is this incredible man of God. This is this man who went out on three missionary journeys. This is this man of profound theological wisdom who wrote these epistles, of course, by the Spirit. This is a man with such humility, with such grace. Who knows how many people were won to Christ through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. This is this man. And what does he say? He says, you also must help us by prayer. That is so good. That is so good. To understand how needy any of us are of prayer. Both our own prayers and the prayers of other people. I posted the other day on Facebook that Laura had her count increase of 81 points. Man, just the outpouring of loving concern of you folks and others who say they're praying for her. It's not just the confidence one in knowing that people are praying. God works through prayer. He does. He says he does. Does he not? He does. Would it be that we had the same kind of approach to such things as our friends on the other side of the world? Let me tell you. Boy, they pray with such faith. And I've told these stories before. But let me share just one of them. It was my last trip there, yeah. So it would have been 2018, so a couple years ago, to Uganda. And Bob and I were doing a two-day marriage conference. And we took turns, back and forth, different messages about marriage. And then we took a lot of questions and answers and gave answers from the scriptures as much as we could. And we were getting to the end of it. And somebody had put forth a question because they knew about my situation. They knew about Laura. And, of course, that was on their hearts. They said, well, how, how do you go about uh, caring for somebody who's terminally ill? So I you know, kind of gave a few verses and the answer as best I could. And um, that was the last question. And we were getting ready to be done. And as we were getting ready to depart, the pastor's wife stands up. Kind of out of order. She just stands up. And she says, we need to pray for Pastor Jerry's wife. And there's like 120 pastors and wives there. And she said that no sooner were those words out of her mouth that every person in that room stood up just like that. And the next thing that happens, and you'd have to be there and know how they pray to understand Every person, every person in that room 
lifts their hands like this, and they begin to pray. Every one of them pray. And I don't know exactly what they're saying because it's all in Ugandan. I can't. But Paul tells me, basically, they're praying for Laura. They're all praying for Laura. On the other side of the world, 120 people are praying for her. They're pouring their hearts out in faith for Laura. Because you know what? They believe. They pray that way. They're trusting Jesus in reality. Now let me tell you something. You don't forget about things like that. And you know God is working in a special way, not just by their prayers, but your prayers too. It matters. It matters. As you go on, it says, So that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. And that's what we're doing here today. Praise God for the prayers of his people. And when I say Laura's been amazing, she has been. But she's been amazing by God's grace. She's been amazing by his sufficiency. She's been amazing by the prayers of God's people for her and how God has answered those prayers. So it matters. It really does. The third point here is uh, trials are opportunities for us to experience God's deliverance. So let's kind of turn this around a little bit. Because who wants to go through a trial? You know, like, oh boy, I got a flat tire. Right? But maybe we can look at this a different way. I mean, who wants to, you know, we praise God for the cross. Paul said, God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of Christ Jesus my Lord. But you know why we can do that? Because on the other side of the cross, there's a what? Resurrection from the dead? Amen? So let's turn this around a little bit. Because if you're like me, I can go back in my life and I can look at those trials and I can say, well, wait a minute here. There was something good there. Yes, I failed in every relationship with a girl before I met Laura. But that brought me to my knees to a point where I could trust God and then say, look what he did. Right? I was a reactor operator at Trojan Nuclear Plant. I was working rotating shift work. I missed church like, yeah, quite a bit, all the time. And I didn't want to. I wanted to be there. This job came open. It was in the train department. I was the most junior of all the people who could possibly apply for that job. Somebody said, you got to apply for that job. I said, nah, there's no way I'm going to get that job. Well, I thought about it some more, and I said, you know what, I should, I should, I should do that. I could apply for that job. And you know what I did next? I went and asked every believer I knew, pray that I get this job. There's a whole bunch of applicants. Everybody wants it. It's a salary job five days a week. And I'm the most junior person, and I've got no other reason to get this job. You know what happened? God gave me the job. These things all happen by prayer. They all happen by prayer. I got done with seminary. I didn't know where I was going to go. Laura and I, we had a discussion with Royce Sprague, talk about different churches and different needs. We're praying about it. We're waiting. We're trying to be patient. And one day in uh, May of 1990, I get this call from Vic Albertson. Bless his heart. What a dear man. He talked with a Norwegian accent. Those of you who knew him know. 
and he filled up one answering machine message, and he called back and filled up another one. <laughs> All that to say we need somebody to come fill in. But you know what we've been praying? We've been praying that God would bring us to a church that you know, would be a good fit for us. And you know what God did? He brought us to the church where the first person in my whole extended family came to know Jesus. Isn't that incredible? Amazing. Some of you will remember it wasn't that long ago, 2007. We had a big storm. Caused all kinds of damage to our building. Jason and I drove up to this building after that storm had come. And we looked at it and said, how in the world are we going to get this taken care of? And, you know, it's kind of funny back in those days. We were, I started preaching on the book of Nehemiah, and it's all about trusting God. But we kind of hit a roadblock because we had two engineering firms. We had the insurance company. We had an insurance adjuster. We had a contractor, another possible contractor, and us in the building codes department. That's like, what, seven entities? And tried to get them to agree on something? Oh, man, it was crazy. We were deadlocked because we couldn't get building codes to say what needed to be done. And we were praying, remember that? We were praying. And you know what God did? He sent an angel disguised as a building inspector to come here one day and get it all taken care of. True story. We're praying for Emily today. Do you remember a day when our good friend Dave Hillard was in the hospital? And I was in the room with his children saying, they were saying, goodbye to dad. No kidding. They had told us earlier that day, there's nothing they could do. We're going to have to remove the machine and, you know, best to go say your farewells. You know what God did? In response to your prayers, what did he do? He saved him. He's still around. Yes, praise the Lord. That's a lot of years ago. Does God answer prayer? Can we trust him? That's the question of the day. Can we trust him in a pandemic? Can we trust him in a political crisis? Can we trust him when our society's falling apart and division? Can we trust him in the affairs of our lives? Can we trust him when you're there on your deathbed and just not far away from your last breath? Can you trust him? Can you trust him if you have terminal cancer? Can you trust him in your life today? Can you? Yes, you can. Yes, you can. In fact, to learn that lesson, that's the best lesson anybody's ever going to learn from any trial they ever have, is that I need to trust Jesus. And when I trust him, I'm going to find that he is always, always 100% trustworthy. That's what I'll find. I mentioned that there's a couple of different ways that God delivers us. Sometimes he delivers us from our trials. He does do that. In fact, that's what this passage here indicates, that they're delivered from this sentence of death where they despaired of life itself. And sometimes God does that. In some of the examples I shared, God delivering us from a trial. Typically, unfortunately, oftentimes when we pray, that's all we're after. But sometimes we actually are better off to go through the trial for God's reasons. And that's the other thing that God does. Sometimes he doesn't deliver us from a trial. He delivers us through a trial. In fact, later on in 2 Corinthians, Paul had what he called a messenger from Satan, a thorn in the flesh, given to him to keep him exalting himself because he had actually had a vision of heaven. 
But nonetheless, that aside, it's a trial he faced. And he asked three times. Three times he asked God, please take this from me. And you know what God said? God said, no. No. But what God did say was, I'll give you the grace sufficient for you to endure it. And he also said, my power is made perfect in weakness. Right? Remember that? And some people might argue and say, okay, well, you know what? I know these people out there, people like, uh, for example, Johnny Erickson Tata. So where's God in all that? You know what? God's testimony is all around the world through that woman, that wonderful woman of God. Or our dear friend Brian, who I talked to the other day. Brian Scutenwatt. I talked to Brian the other day, by the way. And uh, his faith in Jesus through all his trials, just amazing. How many lives, how many Christians have been encouraged by Brian and Haley and their testimony through all that they've gone through? God never delivered them from their trial per se, but he has delivered them through their trials. And to this day, they've got an amazing testimony of the grace of God at work in their lives, right? Sometimes God delivers us to a place where trials will be no more. And uh, we have in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul's last words, if you will. It's his instructions to Timothy. For example, he says in verse 6 of chapter 4, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come, he says. And actually, as you read on from verse 8 and following, and I'm not going to take the time, but you'll notice he's experiencing a lot of trials there in his final days. But then you read down, finally, in verse 17, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. And here's the key verse I wanted us to look at. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. And this is the nature of the Christian life. It started with your deliverance, right? There is a day when you put your faith in Jesus. You acknowledge the fact that you're a sinner before God. You look to the cross and understood that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. You trust in Jesus and that time... What does it say? You were delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son, Colossians 1. So your Christian walk started with God delivering you, saving you. Since that day, as a believer in Christ, there have been many times that God has delivered you from countless things. Probably a lot of things that you and I don't even know about. Completely unaware of how God has protected us in one way or the other. But it's a walk of God delivering you from trials or through trials, step by step, on this journey, right? And there will come a day, there will come a day, whether by the rapture when Jesus comes, or when you pass, you depart from this life, where you will experience a final deliverance that Paul talks about here. And you will be delivered to a place where, guess what? There will be no more need for deliverance. There'll be no more trials. There'll be no more tears. There'll be no more pain. There'll be no more sorrow. There'll be no more death. 
There will be the joy of Jesus' presence in the company of all the believers singing praise to God. Right? And that's what we look forward to. Deliverance is God's specialty. He's good at it. Many of you remember uh, our dear friend Diane West from years ago. She's in heaven now. But I will remember, I, I remember Bob and I, and in her final months, she had so many different medical needs, and there were a lot of trips to the hospital. And there was a final trip to Vancouver in a hospital, and she was in ICU up there. And uh, it was becoming apparent in discussions with the doctors that um, Diane likely wasn't going to make it. Uh, they invited us into her ICU room, Bob and I, and you've, if you've ever been in a situation like that where somebody's on life support, there's a lot of different machines and a lot of different IV tubes, and they're draped everywhere, and a person looks so incredibly helpless in that setting. You know what I mean? I've seen it too many times. So I looked at that. I was looking at Diane, and I was thinking, you know what? There's two ways to look at this, and I'm not really thinking about this the right way because my earthly eyes are telling me that she's very needy, but Scripture's telling me something else because you know what it says in Romans chapter 8? Well, you know what? I'm going to read it because I've got to read the context. And though I have the verse memorized, I don't have the whole context memorized. So I've got to read it for you. Because this is what occurred to me, and this is the reality of things. This is in um, chapter 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, and this is the thought that occurred to me, it isn't as it seems. Yes, it looks like Diane's going through the worst possible trial imaginable. It looks like she's so needy and so mm, stuck there in a hospital bed. And look, some people would say, all is lost, she's going to die. You know what it says in the next part of that verse? It says, more than conquerors. That's what it says. And that, believer in Christ, is your destiny. And because of that, that's why you Part of the people of faith need to be a person of faith. You need to be in these trials trusting Jesus. No woe is me. No pointing the finger. No be crying today and saying how awful it is. No. What I need to say, what we need to say is we are trusting Jesus. That needs to be our message in this day. People need to see that. People need to hear that. We are the ones. Are we not? What does it say? We are the pillar, the church of the living God is the pillar and support 
of the truth. That's what it says. That's us. So where are they going to see? If God's people aren't trusting God, how in the world would we ever expect them to? Right? So let, just let me encourage you. Whatever trials or troubles you might have to, and it might be a small thing. They're not small to God. He still cares. Or it could be something big. He cares about that too. But whatever it is, God has us to do. Remember, two words. Take these two words away from this message. We don't take anything else. Everything else is forgotten. Two words. What are they? Trust Jesus. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just uh, thank you so much for your work in our lives. And boy, it's just so big what you do and what you've done and what you are doing. It's just beyond our ability even to comprehend your love, your power, your wisdom, all you have done to deliver us from our sins, all you are doing in our present day and all the challenges we face, all you've promised to do for us one day. Indeed, you are so good at delivering us. Help us to be, as the people of faith, people of faith in this day. Help us to trust you in the challenges we face. Help us to see those trials not as doom and gloom, why is this happening to me, but instead to see them as an opportunity for your deliverance to be demonstrated once again in my life that you would be honored and glorified in it. In heaven, we'll have a lot of time to talk about all the glorious things that you have done in saving us, not just from our sins, but in every possible way until we're safely home in heaven with you one day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.